Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. to share with you this morning. So I hope you're ready. God is um, doing exciting things amongst us. Um, So exciting and there's so much more to come. The Lord's been speaking to us recently about harvest, about the principles of harvest, about bringing in the harvest. But he's been talking to us as well about a quantum shift. And that's the word that Kerry Kerry Jones spoke over us earlier this year that we will experience a quantum shift. And an important part of that will be the recognition of the apostolic gift in David Lyon in two weeks from now. So I hope you will all be here on the 4th of November. It's going to be a really significant moment for all of us. Um, In fact, one of the things that David said at the Momentum Weekend is that it's more significant than any of us yet realize. And I believe that to be true. And I'm also excited by that. God always does more than we can imagine. He always exceeds our expectations and our imagination because he's just bigger than anything we can can conceive of. And recently I've been looking, um, I've been looking at, as we make a transition into what will be an apostolic base here, I've been looking at another apostolic base and that's the church in Antioch. In um, David's message a couple of weeks ago, he talked about, briefly talked about the church in Antioch, and he said this about the church. He said, the church in Antioch was a church in overflow, a church bursting its banks, and it's here to instruct us. So it's a church in overflow, bursting its banks. I hope that's a familiar word to you, because that's the word that's come to us recently. And it's here in the Word of God to instruct us. So I want the, the, what we have, the reports that Luke has gathered for us about the church in Antioch, to instruct us today, to encourage you, to inspire you, to exhort you, to stir you this morning um, in the next phase that God has for us, for the quantum shift that the Lord said is coming. Some time ago, a few years ago, a prophetic word came to this church that we would be like the church in Antioch, in as much as that we would be like a base, an apostolic base like Antioch was, that we would send out from ourselves ministries and gifts, that we would be a church that pours outwards, not only to this region, but to the world. And our vision has got to match the prophetic word that's come to us. And this is why it's such an important stage that we're at in, in the development and growth of of this body. So this morning, the title is The Outlook from Antioch. In case you haven't guessed, that's a um, telescope that you find by the seaside. We always have to put 10p in. Has anyone actually put 10p in to use one of those? (laughs) The Outlook from Antioch. Um, And I'd like to look at Antioch for three reasons this morning. There's sort of three things I want you just to sort of consider as as we... We look at Antioch. The first is that there are areas 
that we will see that we need to grow in. There are areas in Antioch's life and growth that we need to grow in as well. We need to ask ourselves, how do we need to mature as a body for this next stage in our growth? But as part and parcel of that, you need to ask yourself the question, how do I need to mature and change? And this morning, I really want you to consider that, to say, all that I'm hearing, what does it mean for me? What's got to change for me, for us, to make a quantum shift that we're talking about? And I believe the Spirit, as I'm speaking this morning, will start to drop things into your heart this morning. Sometimes it may be things that you've not thought of for a while, maybe things that have never even occurred to you, but the Spirit will just speak to you this morning. And I just urge you to have your ears open this morning, and whatever the Spirit says, just listen uh, and, and be attentive and responsive. The second thing is this, there are aspects in Antioch for us to emulate. There are things that they did really well, and we need to learn to do them as well, and we will see the sort of growth, and we will have the same success that they had there. And the third thing is this, we need to pay attention to the detail. And I'm going to take you through some of the detail this morning. Detail is important, paying attention to detail, because early this year, I I shared a word that the Lord gave me about being careful to build according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's the word that came to Moses. Be careful to build the tabernacle in accordance with the pattern shown you on the mountain. In other words, against the heavenly blueprint, not against what you see down here, the principles of this world, but of heavenly principles of building. And that's really important for us as we build together, that we build and we pay attention to how we build together. Because how we build will depend on how successful we will be and the longevity of the work that we are building together. So that's really important. So the first thing I'm going to do is throw a map up on the screen for you. There we go. I love maps. I'm not ashamed to say it. I could sit and look at a map for hours. In fact, sometimes I do. When we go on holiday somewhere, I like to get a map, and I like to look at what's around me and see what's around me. I just love maps. So I put this map up here for you for one reason, and that's to show you where Antioch actually is. Because we read the New Testament, and we read about all these places, and some of the names are up there that you'll see, and we don't really know where they are. Some of these places are now in ruins, Some of these places are still preserved. But it's important to know where things are. I remember when I was a kid, we used to go every now and then to my granny's. And all I knew is she lived in the country. That's all I can remember. She lived in the country. We got in the car, we drove through some countryside, and we arrived at granny's. And inevitably, at the end of the evening, when we drove home, I just knew it was going to be a long, long drive through the countryside, so I would just fall asleep every single time when we came back from Granny's. And I would wake up on the driveway at home. I had no idea where Granny's was. And it was only when I got older and then started to drive and then learn where places were that things started to make more sense. And I know that these places are removed from us because they're not geographically here, but they are important in the lives of the heroes of faith that God has given us as examples for our lives. They're important for the conditions that those people faced and the journeys that they made to understand how long something took to go from here to here. And where, when you were in a particular place, where were you near to? 
And I think Antioch has a strategic importance. What you can see there is a lot of what was the Roman Empire. It went a little further than you can see on the map. But where you can see places are where churches were established. And this is actually Paul's third missionary journey. I've only picked this one because it's a useful illustration and the map is nice and clear for our screen. But Antioch turned into a base of operations for the church. It turned into a launching pad. And you can see when you look at it, it's a good launching pad. It took you all the way up through Cilicia and Galatia and then across into, into what is now Greece and then back across the Med. So it's really important to know where things are. And I'm going to give you a few background facts on Antioch before we get into the scriptures to tell you a little bit about the place. It was founded in about 300 BC by a chap called Seleucius, who was one of Alexander the Great's generals. So Alexander the Great built a huge empire that spanned all of this territory. But when he died in about 323 BC, his generals essentially had a big fight over who was going to grab all the land that was previously in Alexander's empire. And they carved it up between them. And this guy, Seleucius, was one of those. And he claimed this area here, which is on the right where you can see Antioch, that is Syria. And he claimed a large portion of territory up there and then a crop in, into Cilicia. Now, it's not to be confused with another Antioch. Did you know there are two Antiochs in the Bible? Some people are not quite sure about that. There are two Antiochs in the Bible. In fact, when we get into the book of Acts, you'll find there's an Antioch that's mentioned in Acts 11, which we're going to read about in a minute, and then there's another Antioch that's mentioned a couple of chapters later called Antioch in Pisidia. So Pisidia is just north up where you see Cilicia. It's around about there. It's not unusual to find two places called Antioch because this guy, Seleucius, he named the city Antioch after his father, Antiochus. In fact, he established 60 cities when he claimed his territory, and 16 of them he called Antioch. So it's actually quite a popular name. <laughs> but we're only interested in one of those Antiochs. And this was a fantastic place. It's located about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean on a city called the Orientes, which was a city, uh, sorry, on a river that's called the Orientes, which meant that strategically it was important because they were close to the coast where they could receive goods and um, uh, commerce, but also they had a river so they could send things upstream across into the Asian continent. So it was a strategically important city, and that meant it was an important city. It was the third largest in the Roman Empire. You've got Rome being the largest, the second one being Alexandria, and the third one is our Antioch. So a really important place. In fact, it had a population of about half a million. Now, if you know anything about population sizes back then, half a million was huge. It's like a mega city today. And it was a center of lots of commerce. It was a center of lots of culture. There was an amphitheater there. Um, there was a circus that met there every week that was established. And there was even chariot racing that took place. It was a really happening place, very cosmopolitan and lots of people. And do you know what the amazing thing for me is? The earliest known estimate of the size of the church in Antioch we can find is someone writing in about 300 AD. And they reckon that the church was around 100,000 strong. 100,000. Now, this church had built up over a long period of time, but it shows that they were doing something right. 
in a city of half a million, one in five of them belong to the church. That's astounding, isn't it? For me, that means I need to sit up and take notice. As David said to us, this church is here to instruct us. So let's be instructed this morning. Let's turn to Acts 11. We're going to read a few scriptures from verse 19 onwards in Acts 11, and then just a few in Acts 13, about some of the things that Luke told us about this church. Once we've read through the scriptures, I want to pull out three things that are evident about Antioch, three things that are really there quite clearly that I think are for us. In some ways, our journey so far has paralleled Antioch, and there are lots of parallels with this church, but there are things, as I said, there are areas for growth for us, and I think we can see them in the pages of Luke's account. So we're going to start Acts 11 and verse 19, and it says this, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greek, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by the elders, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And then if you go across to chapter 13, this is some time later. It says, so this is after Barnabas and Saul have been to Jerusalem with this offering that the church in Antioch had taken up for the saints in Jerusalem. They came back. And it says in verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, and, sorry, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Fantastic. So lots happening in this church. If you go back to chapter 11, I want to just pull out some things in Luke's description of the church for us. And the first of these, if you can just put the next slide up, guys, is that this church was outward focused. 
Now, this is really important for us because when David was speaking at Momentum, I really believe he was sharing his apostolic heart for us to be a people and a church that are bursting our banks. And the people at Antioch were like this. In fact, the very birth of the church, if you look at verse 19, it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so you'll remember going back a couple of chapters, Stephen was stoned to death. And after that came a great persecution. Who was at the head of that persecution? Who was leading the charge? It was Saul. That's right. And lots of the Christians, the disciples, were scattered. So there was an outward dispersion, a diaspora of these people. And that's how the church came to be. That was the beginning of the church. In other words, they were outward from the very beginning. They were always traveling and outward, looking in their outlook. And that meant that that was in the seeds of this church, right at its beginnings. That's really important for us. Because it can be very easy when you get to a certain size in a church to think, well, this is great. In fact, going again back to what David said at Momentum, this is a nice stream. This is nice. This is pleasant. But this is not enough. And this is not what we're called to. We're called to be a river that will burst its banks. So we have to decide whether we're happy with what we've got or whether we're going to move. And we need to follow the prompting of the Spirit. So initially, this came from an outward dispersion. We also see in the next verse, it talks about, um, sorry, in verse 19, it talks about the people that traveled, they went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus. You can see Cyprus. You can't see it on the map now because it's not there, but you remember where Cyprus was. Um, And as far north as Antioch, speaking to people, only Jews, about Jesus. And then gradually, we see that they were talking to people who weren't Jewish, but they were what they called Gentiles. So these people were showing initiative. These were not people that were waiting for instructions. They were people who were following the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was saying, this message is for everyone. Not just for people that you feel comfortable with. Not just for your own. But you need to reach across barriers, social classes, races, and speak to everyone in the community. And they were people who showed initiative. They didn't wait for others to direct them what to do, but they listened to what the Spirit said, I'm going to do it. That's their response. And we need to be like that. We need to be initiative takers in this church, folks. We need to be those that are doing things as the Spirit prompts us. Our heart as elders is not to control what people do. It's to encourage you in what you feel the Spirit's leading you to do, to equip you in that, to give you the right infrastructure and support so that when the life of God is present, we can nurture that and see something grow. It's really important. Here's something else that's really important. It says, you could miss this if you're not careful. It says, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word. Speaking the word. Now, I looked at what that means. Because the speaking and then the speaking... And it means chatting. It's a Greek word, leleo, and it means to chat. It means chit-chat. It means when you're traveling, you might meet someone on a bus or a train, and you start chatting to them. That's what the word means, to chit-chat. That's how they started spreading the gospel, was just to chat to people. It was chitter-chatter, but it was good (laughs) chitter-chatter. You know, a few weeks ago, I can't remember when it was now, but Rich was talking 
about Jesus, the scripture where it says he was going around doing good, healing and freeing up people who were oppressed of the devil. He was just going around. And these guys were just going around wherever they were and just chatting to people. And our outreach has to start with just chit-chat. Let it be the most natural thing in the world, just to chit-chat. The other thing I find really interesting is in verse 21, it talks about the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, so often when we read in the book of Acts, you read about something that happened like Pentecost and so much happened on one day. Now, I sometimes think, what happened the next day? What happened the week after that? And we just have these snapshots. And it can be easy to get the impression that nothing happened for a while. Then suddenly on one day, Peter and John walk to the temple and something amazing happens. And then nothing happened for a few months. And then suddenly they're they're in a place and the place starts shaking and the Spirit of God moves. It can be easy to think that actually God just moves infrequently, but when he does, it's powerfully in the book of Acts. But you know what we have here is in a few verses a description of something that happened over around 10 years. 10 years in about a verse. Because when Stephen was stoned, the closest estimate we have is the, the low 30s, AD 33, 34, something like that. But when we've, we read that a report of what happened in this church reached the elders in Jerusalem, that was about 43, 44 AD. So over a number of years, God was moving and adding to them. You know what that says to me is, it wasn't a flash-in-the-pan operation. It wasn't people that had a crusade for a few days, saw a load of people saved, and then everything went back to normal. These were people who every day were living in the power of the Spirit, were telling people and seeing people added to them all the time. And the vision that we have is to see people added to us daily. No, no, that's enormous, because you think, that's 365 in a year. Fantastic. God can do it. And if we're chatting to people, that just means one person a year, really, for us, to see that number of people added, to see people added daily. So the Lord was with them, not just for a season, he was with them for a decade, in his goodness and growing them. And that's the vision that we need to have, is that God is going to be with us to add people to us all the time. Not just at Christmas, not just in a season, but all the time that God's will is for people to be added to us. And that's only going to happen through us opening our hearts and chatting to people about the Jesus that we know. So we see this great growth happen and... They were outward focused as a church, but they became the epicenter for an explosion of the gospel from Antioch across the whole of the Gentile world. It's something that was beyond the imagination of the disciples in the early days. And in fact, the preceding chapter, chapter 10, we see Peter having this experience where the Spirit gives him a vision to say, look, this isn't just for Israel. This isn't just for you Jews. This is for the whole world. And he had to give them a revelation that their vision needed to grow. It needed to be bigger. And you know, I think that is always our experience, is that whatever vision we have for what God wants to do, the Spirit comes and says, that's great, but I'm going to broaden it. I'm going to make it even bigger. 
We can't have a bigger vision than the one the Spirit's got for us. We can't have a bigger expectation than the plans that the Lord has for us. I think that's really exciting. We're never going to go to God and say, I'm believing for all these things. And the Lord says, whoa, whoa, just calm down a bit. Just, let's just take things one at a time. Now, why don't you just start with these things and, and, and we'll see about the rest. No, God says, fantastic. You've just glimpsed a little bit of what I have for you. And God gets excited with us because he, he's so excited about all the things he wants to do in us and amongst us and through us. And then when we get down to verse 27, this is the description of these prophets that come down from Jerusalem and Agabus gets up and he brings this prophetic word about a famine that was coming. What's interesting for me is their reaction we find, verse 29 it says, so the disciples in Antioch determined that they would send relief to those that were in Judea, to the church in Jerusalem. Now when I read the scripture, Agabus seems to say this famine is going to affect the whole world. But they didn't think, okay, we need to start saving something up for Antioch. Their first instinct was to say, we need to send relief outwards. We need to be a blessing to others. We have brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Let's take up what we can and let's send it to them. Their instinct was always to be outward reaching. And that needs to be our instinct. It can be very easy to get to a certain size, as I said, and to think, let's just consolidate. Let's just make what we have good. But that's not God's will for us. God's will is for us to be always outward reaching. Now let me tell you, that is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because we cannot settle. And when it gets to the nitty gritty, it means things like life groups, when life groups change. You know, if God adds to us, life groups have to keep changing because there is a constant flow of people being added to the Lord and we need to be prepared to move with that flow rather than say do you know what I'm happy here this is great for me our focus needs to be no I need to reach outwards we need to be constantly reaching outwards and it's hard to be outward looking when you're facing challenges because the temptation is to look within and say yeah but I, I, I just really need to take some time with the Lord because these are real challenges in my life and I, I don't feel up to I don't feel missional I feel bruised and I feel hurt and I need the Lord to heal me. I need the Lord to sort this issue out in my life. That doesn't make me feel very missional. You know, the biggest challenge anyone has ever faced was the cross. And you know what that person did? The scriptures tell us it was for the joy set before the Lord Jesus that he endured the cross. Jesus looked beyond the cross. He looked beyond himself, his own pain and suffering. He looked to the joy that was set before him. Do you know what that joy was? It was us. He looked, and in the spirit, he saw us. And he said, that's worth it. And we need to be the same. We need to look out with, outside of ourselves, to see the harvest, to see all the things that God is calling us to, and his promise to us is that when you do that, I will heal the pain. I will deal with the challenge. He has to constantly remind us of that because our instinct, sadly, is to turn back inside ourselves again and say, I just need to sort this out first. You know what? We become like that rich man. 
that young man that came to Jesus and said, I want to do everything for you. And he said, well, then give this up. I can't do that. There was something getting in the way. Whereas Jesus said, look, you give all of that and I'll give you everything you need. It's really important for us, folks. We need to be outward looking like Antioch. Now, the second thing is this. You put the next slide up. They were Christ-centered. This is what I love about this description. Not without purpose. Luke chooses his words carefully. Being a doctor, um, he chose his words carefully. He was a man of precision in the way he gathered um, the facts of what happened on the ground. It says this, now in verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Who were the people that established this church? It's not a trick question. Who were the people that established this church? We've just read it. Those who were scattered. They didn't even get a name mention. It tells you something about this church. It tells me that actually it wasn't a church full of superstars. It wasn't a church with a superstar culture. It wasn't a church where people were looking for labels and recognition of who they are. There were people who took initiative. There were people who were outward looking. The reason why is because for them, Jesus had to have all the glory. It was all about him, not about them. And that's a really key thing for us. We have said time and again that in this church, we don't want there to be a superstar culture, but that every single person here has a crucial, crucial gift. There is gifting within each and every single one of us in this room. And sometimes we look to others and we revere the gift in others and we neglect the gift in us. And we depreciate the value of what we have. I can tell you when the Holy Spirit looks across this body, he doesn't see that. He sees wonderful, beautiful gifts that he wants to bring to the fore. Expressions of the nature and heart of Christ that he wants to see coming out so that there's a rich variety, a tapestry in this body. That's what Antioch was like. And that's what this body will be like. I believe we're on the way to that, but I believe we have a long way to go yet. And my heart is to see every single person in this body to see the gift arise in them, to know who you are and to know what you bring, and for the rest of us to receive from you. We're desperate for that. We desperately need it. If you take Barnabas, he's a great example of this. Barnabas was someone who didn't have a label at the beginning. In fact, when we're introduced to Barnabas in verse 22, it says the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You know what Barnabas's label was? His description? It says in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So when the disciples knew that something significant was happening in Antioch, did they send their best apostle? 
Did they send their most famous prophet? They sent a man called Barnabas. Because the only qualifications you need are to be full of the Holy Spirit in faith. And you know what? We're going to come on to this. But Barnabas was just what they needed for the next stage in their development. But Barnabas didn't say, hang on, before you send me, okay, what am I going to be called? When I arrive with the letter of commendation, what's my title? What's my role? He didn't. He just says, I'm a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That applies to every single person in this room. Every single one of us can be a Barnabas and can have the impact that Barnabas had on this body of people. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Absolutely phenomenal. Initially, he's described as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A year or two later, in Acts 13, we just read those first few verses, it says he was listed amongst the teachers and prophets. When we get to Acts 14, and he's on his first missionary journey with Paul, he's called an apostle. The thing that that tells me is that Barnabas was never pigeonholed into one thing. Sometimes we can get pigeonholed into being a particular type of gift, into being in a particular type of area that we serve, and we can think, well, that's, that's all I'm going to be, or that's all that's expected of me. But we need to be more like Barnabas to say, do you know what? I'm going to do whatever God gives me the grace to do at the time. And that's exactly what he did. Whatever God has given me the grace to do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to worry what it's called. I'm not going to be restricted. If the Spirit says, I want you to do this, I'm just going to respond to it because the grace of God will be with me to do that. Another interesting thing about this group of people is that it says that um, they were added to the Lord. The great number of people turned, but they were added to the Lord. Do you notice that it doesn't say added to the church? It doesn't say added to the church. It says added to the Lord. Because for this group of people, it was all about Jesus. They were Christ-centered. Everyone that came in to them wasn't someone that's a potential member, church member. They were someone to be added to the Lord Jesus. Really important. And then it says in verse 26 that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, it's a really interesting word, Christian. I don't know if you've really thought much about it. Obviously, it has Christ in it. But at the time, Christ was the Greek translation for the Hebrew word, Hamashiach, which meant Messiah or anointed one. The Greek word was Christos. So in Greek-speaking culture, they would have used Christos. And the little suffix at the end, I-A-M, E-A-M, was a Latin word, and it meant to come from the party of. So there was a party called the Caesareans, who were a political party who were supporters of Caesar. So Christians meant these people were something to do with Christ, and they were of the party of Christ. It's interesting that you've got a Jewish concept of a Messiah, you've got a Greek word in Christos, and then you have a Latin concept of being grouped together bound by one thing. And I think it's really important that at this time they were called Christians. It's often supposed that at that time it was initially a kind of a satirical label that was applied to them. That it wasn't a compliment, but somehow it was a sarcastic remark about them. Oh, these are Christians. 
like Christian party. What I love is that Luke doesn't do anything to reject that label. The disciples didn't do anything to reject that label. They said, yeah, that's us. We're all about Christ. You know, what it signified is that the world was taking them seriously. The world took them seriously because they gave them a serious name, really. It was an outward recognition of what was going on in this church. They were starting to be a force to be reckoned with, to be labelled a party. The world was taking them seriously before they were introducing the world to Jesus personally. It was a formal thing. But when they were reaching out to the people in Antioch, Jesus became a personal thing. It's important that we're taken seriously as a group of people. But what are we taken seriously for? What are we known for? We're not a social group. We're not a charity. We're not outreach workers. We're not community workers. We are Christians. Jesus is what we're about. And because of that, we do all of those things. But Jesus must always be at the center. The third thing is this, is that they were fruitfully nurtured. This is a church where people were fruitfully nurtured. And right from the beginning, there is a principle here that's really important for us, and that's the principle of establishment. I believe fruitful growth requires proper foundations. Now, what we find is when Barnabas is sent down to them, there's something I think is kind of interesting in the language here. And this might be just my interpretation, maybe just the way I read it. I don't know whether it's what Luke intended, but there's something that stands out to me. And it's this. Before Barnabas arrived, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, that tells me there were decisions for Christ. But then, when Barnabas arrived, it says that a great number were added to the Lord. Whatever Barnabas brought to them, he was apostolic, we know that from later on. He brought something that established proper foundations. And that's why we talk a lot about foundations, Why foundations are so important? Because if you're going to have growth, you need to have proper and secure and firm foundations. If you're going to build a building, the foundations have got to be right because as the building grows, if the foundations aren't right, at some point, it's all going to go wrong, isn't it? And that's why foundations are important. And that's why Barnabas was sent to them because he was a foundational ministry. So in this house, we need an apostle. And God has given us an apostle to lay an apostolic foundation. It's a recipe for success, and it's what we need. The next principle that I see, if you turn to verse 25, Barnabas arrives, he sees what's going on, but then he says, he gets to a point where he says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So a great many people added, the very next verse it says, so, there was growth because Barnabas was there. When the growth happened, it says, so, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas knew that he couldn't do it on his own. And he knew that ministry needs to work in plurality. 
that there needs to be complementary gifting. So what we have is a man here, Barnabas, but he knew that he needed a partner in the work. And that's a key part of the growth in Antioch, was having this complementary gifting, working together side by side. I want to suggest something to you all, that whatever calling or ministry you have, and just to be clear, all of you do have calling and ministry, we're all in ministry folks, that you're not called to do that on your own. I don't believe there is a ministry that is designed to function alone. I don't believe there's gifting that's designed to function on its own. We're all called to be harnessed with other gifts and ministries around us. Now, for those of you that are married, there is a harnessing between husband and wife and a complementarity in gifting and strengths. There is that in the natural, there is that in the spiritual as well. And I believe in addition to that, there are giftings that are meant to be harnessed together across the body. And what I want to put to you is, have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that the calling that's on your life, that there may be someone else in this body that you need alongside you to help you move forward in that? I'm just giving you a minute to think about that. When that happens, I can tell you from experience, it does something to you. There are other gifts that when you see them in operation, when you hear that person's heart, something sparks inside. And you become more than you were because of your interaction with them. I believe that God wants to do that across this body, that he wants to harness and partner people together in gifts that are complementary to one another, but will spark one another in the spiritual realms. And I believe that we can experience a synergy by, by looking for those partnerships together. I realize that may be kind of a bit new to some people. It may be a bit of a foreign concept, but I want you to start to think about that. There are other people in this body that the Spirit of God wants to direct you to, to get alongside, to encourage, and you will find together a synergy. In other words, you'll be more than the sum of your parts. They will do you good, and you will do them good. And I believe that's part and parcel of how we will grow as a body. Because in Antioch, there was obviously a multitude of gifting. By the time we get to Acts 13, the reason why we read that little bit in Acts 13 was because it says in Antioch, there was gifts. We didn't have that before at the beginnings, but God adds to them. And earlier this year, when we were seeking the Lord, the leadership team, we were spending time before God at Kerry's instruction to us to listen to the Spirit, to say, what is the next stage for us? What happens next? The Spirit said clearly to us, you will have everything you need. And that included apostolic gifting. But it includes lots of other gifts as well. And I, I don't want to talk anymore about that. I know David will talk about that in future. But God said, you will have every type of gift that you need. In Antioch, that meant it was a seedbed of gifts and ministries, so much so that they were sent outwards in this dispersion that continued in this church. 
And in this explosion of the gospel, these ministries were sent around the churches. It became that apostolic outward thrusting base. You know, when God says you have everything you need, when I listened to that, I thought immediately, it's here. All that we need for the next stage in our growth, the gifts that we need, are right here. There are people present in this room that may not know what God has called them to yet. I want to encourage you to go before the Lord. I think this is really key to us right now. Because there are people here that have been in a certain place in their lives for a, for a long period of time. It may be in your habits, it may be in your behavior, it may be in the measure of faith that you have, it may be in the gifting in which you move. But the Lord wants to expand you. And we need to respond to that. We need to be ready to say, I'm ready to, to move, I'm ready to shift. If a quantum shift comes, guess what? We've all got a shift. It's not just something abstract that happens and we all benefit from it. It's something that happens within each of us. So we've got to change. We've got to grow and expand. You know, the house of God is built with living stones. That's what Peter tells us. Have you ever thought about what, why he said living? Because stones, a stone that you build a house with, is not alive, is it? It doesn't change. It's just a stone. It'll be the same shape and size tomorrow. But guess what? A living stone is always changing. A living stone is growing. Now, can you imagine trying to build a house with living stones? Imagine that. You lay the first course of bricks, first course of stones, I should say. You say, okay, let's take a tea break, boys. You come back, and it's all changed because the stones have grown. That's what the Lord has to contend with, with us building his house with living stones. But here's the implication. If God wants to change you, if God wants to expand you, have you ever considered this? Maybe the spot where you are on the wall right now, someone else needs that spot. In other words, there are smaller stones. You're in, in this space, but God wants you to be like that. So you're too big for the space you're in. God wants to move you to a different place so you can expand, but he also wants to move smaller stones, less mature stones, into the place where you were so that they can grow and expand. It doesn't, it's not just about us, folks. It's about others as well, them expanding. If we don't move, we end up being in the way of others who need to grow and expand. And that's how the house needs to change. So I just want you to consider, am I staying the same? Has everything stayed the same for me? And is it time for change? And am I willing? Because change is never easy. But staying the same is just not an option, folks. It's not an option for any of us. Barnabas brought a culture of encouragement. You know that's what Barnabas means. It means son of encouragement. That wasn't the man's name. The man's name was Joseph. But the apostles nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. They nicknamed him Barnabas because of his manner, because of his heart. You know what? He was the right man to nurture the work in Antioch. They could have sent the wrong guy at the wrong time, but they sent the right man at the right time. When he came, he could have said, right, okay, everyone, I've arrived from Jerusalem. That's HQ, for those of you that don't know. 
Um, now, we do things a certain way in Jerusalem, and already I'm seeing you've got a few practices here that we're not sure about, so we're going to change a few things. Is that okay with everyone? But he didn't. He came, he looked, and he saw, and he said, I see evidence of the grace of God. I see God's grace in action in this place. I want to encourage you in that. There was a culture of encouragement that Barnabas brought to them that they needed for the next stage in their development. I want there to be a culture of encouragement in this house, that each of us are encouraging each other to grow and change and expand and to explore the gifting that God's put within us. So there's positive affirmation all the time. That's the culture of growth. That's the culture, a healthy culture for all of us. You know, he encouraged them in wholeheartedness and endurance. Because they'd got to a certain place, but Barnabas could see what they needed for the next stage. And you know that call for wholeheartedness? I believe that's the call for us as well. If we want to see a quantum shift and a change, that requires change in us. And it requires us to be 100% in. We have to be 100% in. We cannot mess around at this. This is the purposes of God. This has cosmic implications. I I cannot overstate the importance of what we do. It's more important than anything else on this earth. So we have to understand that. We have to be prepared to change, to see that quantum shift. We have to be all in, folks. Another thing was that Barnabas was a loyal man, and I believe he brought a culture of loyalty into this church. You know, Barnabas was the only one that stood by Saul. When Saul was saved, he went to try and uh, meet with the disciples in Jerusalem, and they wouldn't meet with him. They said, this guy was killing us last week. We're not going to meet with him. And Barnabas said, no, I believe in this man. I believe he's met with Jesus. I, I see the potential. Barnabas saw the potential in people. In fact, when they went on their first missionary journey, they took with them John Mark, And when they wanted to set sail again on another journey, Paul said, I don't want to take Mark with us this time. And it became such a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they had to separate. Barnabas stood with Mark. Now, we don't know what the source of that disagreement was, but you know one thing I do know is this, that when Paul writes his last letter, which was 2 Timothy, he's imprisoned in Rome, probably near the end of his life. He asked for this same man, Mark, to be sent to him because he said, he's helpful in my ministry. Now, I wonder if Barnabas, all the way back there, saw something that Paul just did not see in this man. He was a loyal man, Barnabas. He engendered loyalty in the body of Christ. Let us be loyal to one another. Let us always speak well of one another. Let us always talk each other up. Let us always extol the benefits of one another. Let us always see the potential in one another. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to see into each other, to say, show me the gift, show me the beautiful thing that you have put inside someone so that I can call it out. And so that when that's in doubt, I can stand with them and say, no, I believe in that person. They may be going through a tough time now. They may be struggling. They may not look like the person we want them to be, but I believe they will be. And we need that kind of loyalty across the body. Loyalty to each other and loyalty to what God is doing. There was loyalty and unity. And lastly, 
there was a culture of sending and receiving. And this is key for us as an apostolic base, that we are sending outward and we're receiving inward. It's not a time to button down the hatches. And David will speak more about this, but becoming an apostolic base doesn't mean, okay, we just button down the hatches. We are now self-contained. That's not what it means. It means that we will work in function, in partnership with other apostolic bases. And we need to receive ministry that comes in. And we need to send people out. David encouraged and challenged us at Momentum. North, south, east, west, where are you going to go? Now, it's easy to listen to that and say, "Mm, yeah, I'll give that some thought. Monday, back to work. Life carries on. But the challenge is still there. North, south, east, west, where will you go? In Acts 13, we see two men that were set apart by the Spirit. He said, set them apart for the work I have set them to do. And each of us need to be listening to the Spirit to say, Lord, where do you want me? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? It's significant when there's ascending. For some people here, you may have been stagnating. But in the act of sending, sometimes something is established. That's what happened for Saul. When they laid hands on him in Acts 13 and they sent him, something changed. In fact, by the time they get to Cyprus, which was their first stop on their journey, it says, Luke says, Saul, who was called Paul. And from then on described him as Paul the Apostle, whom we know and love. Something was established in the sending. And I believe that there are things to be established in lots of people here. And for some of you, it's only going to come when you'll be willing to be sent to a locality, to a situation that may be beyond anything you've done before, but the gift is in you, and you just need to respond. So Antioch became a launch pad because of this, because of the way that they were, because of these things about Antioch, they became a launch pad for all of Paul's missionary journeys. He made three main missionary journeys, establishing the churches, but Antioch became the base. It wasn't Jerusalem anymore. Antioch was the place. It became the pivot point for this explosion into the Gentile world. You know, David said to us at Momentum that there are two types of church. There is a church that is focused on retaining and preserving what it has, and there is a church which are poorers, givers, and sharers. He said we don't have permission to be the first type. We only have one option, folks. This isn't a choice. It is simply yes or no to God. We've been called to be a church that's overflowing our banks, not afraid of the world around us, but knowing that we are infectious with the love of Jesus that we have in our hearts, that that cannot help but infect other people. Barnabas helped the church in Antioch consolidate what they had, but it was only to prepare them for their quantum shift across the whole of the Roman Empire. And I want us to capture the heart of these people in Antioch. I want us to capture the heart of Barnabas and all that he brought to them and what he introduced into their culture. He was a man who was sent to prepare them for their own quantum shift. I believe we have a man who's been given to us 
an apostolic gift to prepare us for our quantum shift. And what we need to do to lay hold of that is to consider where we're at, our thought patterns, our behavior, the extent of the gifting that we move in, the roles that we have, the places where we serve. And we need to be prepared for the spirit to speak into our lives. Would you just stand with me a minute? Can I just thank you for bearing with me? I know this has not been a short time. I had a lot to share this morning. And we are at a really important juncture. I can't underline that enough. As David said, we don't yet realize the significance of it. But I really believe, although we don't know the significance of it, we need to prepare for it. And what I'm trying to do this morning is to lay that groundwork in us, that foundation that we need to move to the next phase. So, Father, let's just lift our hands to him. Holy Spirit, I pray right now, Lord, that as we stand in your presence, that you, precious Spirit, will speak to each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would impart right now a deposit. Lord, I pray that you would start to speak into our hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray, come with assurance, Lord, that you are with us, but I pray that you would speak to us clearly, each one of us, Lord. I pray that you would start to show each one of us the significance, the value, and the beauty of the gift and calling that you have distributed as you will. Lord, for our part, in our hearts, Lord, we just respond. I'm going to give you a moment just to respond. I'm not going to do it for you. But I want you just in a few seconds just to respond to what the Spirit's been saying to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing and we're so excited about all that you're going to do. Lord, your plan is to fill this earth with your glory as surely as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, we determine in our hearts to give ourselves toward that end and Lord, to be like clay in the hands of the potter. Lord, shape us Stretch us, mold us. Let us grow to be bigger stones. And Lord, place us where you want us for this building to continue to take shape. And most of all, Lord, for your name to be glorified in this place and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.